All right, so this has been quite a week. Some of you have watched more sports in the last week than you have in the last three years. You didn't know you could cheer so hard. You don't even understand the rules of half the things that are going on, but you're very excited about it. Become quite passionate, right? It's, it's Summer Olympic time, and it really captures the attention of the world. Very interesting to watch, to see just what a human athlete can do and the, and the level of performance that they have. And it's, it's equally, if not even more fascinating, to see the team sports and what can a team accomplish. And that's certainly true in the Olympics, whether it's volleyball or rugby or soccer or basketball, to see how they work together as a unit. No all-stars. In fact, if you got the all-star and they're functioning like the it's all about me mentality, you're out soon. Why? Because teams work well and function best when they work together. And you see that in the Olympics. Like, for instance, the U.S. women's volleyball team. I, I saw a little bit of them. And they're, I mean, it is awesome to see just how they will sacrifice themselves. And they are, everybody's fulfilling this, their role. And even if they are not on the court, uh, apparently every person on the team has their own little cheer. And when they do something good, they kind of go into their own little cheer thing. It's like, wow, how about that? But they are so for each other. And they want to win. And they want to win as a team. And you understand that if you don't really give it your all and give it for the best of the team, you have a common goal, a common vision, you have the right mindset that you're working together, if you don't have that, what you've got is dysfunction. And the results are rather predictable. What you find, though, is that when you function like a team, there's a synergism. That's true in athletics. It's very true in business. But it is especially true in the church. You and I, if we are truly members of the body of Christ, if we truly are trusting in Christ, we are on, in essence, a team, a local church that is meant and designed to function together. God is so committed to the growth of his body that we function and grow well together that he actually gives spiritual gifts to his people so that they'll be exercised for the growth of the body. So the question we want to ask is, how does spiritual growth really take place in a church? And you're going to find that there's some pretty strong parallels to the teamwork you see in the Olympics and the teamwork that God calls for in the scriptures. So this morning, we're going to look at a couple of passages, but I want to begin in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 11 and 12. Take a look at this. He says, verse uh, 10, as each one has received a special gift, Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So did you see that? Everyone's received a special uh, grace-given gift, a spiritual gift. We're to employ it in serving one another as good stewards. Or you could translate this as a manager. God has entrusted resources, in this case gifts, and he does so according to his grace. And so what does this look like? Verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as the one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. So every person that has placed their faith in Christ, at the moment you do so, he actually gives you spiritual gifts that need to be developed that are to be used for the growth and the maturity of the body. Now, a spiritual gift is any talent or ability 
that is given in the power by the Holy Spirit, that is given to a believer, that is be, to be used for the building up of the body of Christ to the glory of God. Spiritual gifts are never given for your self-edification. They are always given for group development or development and maturity of the church. And you don't actually determine your gifts. Notice what the text says. They are given by grace, by God's manifold grace. You can't ask for like, God, I need this gift, and he gives it to you. God actually determines. It's kind of like your skin color, your hair color, your eye color. They are gifts given to you by God. And so it is also in spiritual gifts. When you have spiritual birth, when you truly know Christ, he gives you gifts that are to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. And you're having probably a smattering of gifts. No, set, no individual believer is exactly the same as another. Spiritual gifts are kind of like snowflakes or fingerprints. Yeah, you can see some, some common patterns, but they're each just a little bit different. And that's how God has designed it. He gives each believer some unique gifts to be used to serve in the body. It's kind of like he has this palette of gifts, like, a, uh, like art. And he gives to each one, each believer, some sort of gift. Some of you have some super strong gifts in a particular area. A lot of us just have some different aspects of gifts. But all of us are gifted, and we are gifted for the opportunity to serve God and to build up the body of Christ. Now, when we talk about spiritual gifts, one of the problems that occurs is that some people get so hung up on the gifts that they find their sense of well-being and identity by the gifts that they have and how they think God is using them. So, uh, it's interesting. If you find your identity in your gifts rather than God, you're going to be in trouble. You see, God wants us to find our sense of well-being and identity in Jesus Christ. To know that we're unconditionally loved. That Christ has truly paid the penalty for our sins. He's given us his righteousness. We believe by faith and we're united eternally in the Son. We are never, ever separated from him. God doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us as united in Christ. And when you and I are really at peace with just that we're God's kids, you know what happens? we got a freedom to really enjoy life, a freedom to really engage and go forward. It's really uh, interesting how you, this particular Olympics, I just happened to catch something I, I never, ever see, and that is synchronized diving. If it wasn't in the Olympics, I wouldn't even know it's a sport. And I happened to just catch the end of it, and I didn't know synchronized diving could be so exciting. When you listen to the announcement, he's just going ecstatic. I'm like, okay, so here you have these guys, and they're, they're jumping off this platform, and they do all these flips, and they do them together, okay? And in the particular case, uh, we got David Badia and Steele Johnson. They were representing the United States, and, and these guys were awesome. They just weren't quite as awesome as the Chinese who took the gold medal. So our Americans took the silver medal, and as it would be, how they, uh, they do this, they always uh, basically interview the Americans. Whether they win or not, it doesn't matter. We're going to interview, interview the Americans. And so they do. And they got Steele, uh, Johnson, and David Bodia. They got them there, and they're doing this interview right after they had just won the silver medal. And they're asking them some questions, and David Bodia says this right after winning the silver medal. Quote, It's just an identity crisis. When my mind is on this diving, and I'm thinking I'm defined by this, then my mind goes crazy. But 
we both know that our identity is in Christ. And we're thankful for this opportunity to be able to dive in front of Brazil and in front of the United States. I'm like, what? I can't even believe that I was hearing this right on the TV. You know, I can assure you, next Olympics, they are going to edit the interviews. I mean, you can't have truth out there like that. No way. And so here are these guys, and they're just that up front. You could tell that the interview wasn't going so well. They moved immediately to Steele Johnson. Like, say something like, you're supposed to say None of this Jesus bit. And then Steele Johnson said this. The way David just described it was flawless. Whoa. And then he said, the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace. And it let me enjoy the contest. Friends, that's where it's at. You find your identity in Christ. And then you're really free to enjoy the gifts that God has given. You're free to engage. You're free to see your work as your ministry. That's kind of like, that's the beauty of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, that no one should boast. But the very next verse, verse 10, you know what he says? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, God intends to do good, a lot of good, through his people. So committed is he to this that he even gives gifts. Gifts that are meant to be used for God's glory. And God glorifies himself when his people work together as a team. Now, God never gives useless gifts. Um, in a church, he intends that every single person is actively involved. It's not like our brains. Did you know what? The smartest individuals among us only use about 11% of their brain. That's sad, okay? I think I must be at the 2% level, okay? But the smarts are using 11%. God doesn't want, like, 11% of the people in the church, they're using their gifts, and everybody else is just kind of watching, like, Christianity is a spectator sport. No! He wants them fully engaged, all of them, every brain cell, every member of his body. There are four passages in the New Testament that talk about gifts. Pretty easy to remember. It is Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. And those are the passages that talks about gifts. Um, every believer is given at least one gift, Spiritual gifts are given at the moment that you believe. Um, they allow you to fulfill different roles. And they all derive from their same source, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for the same purpose, for the glory of God and the growth of his body. So there are, in the New Testament, three categories of spiritual gifts. First category that you'd find is what we could call sign gifts. Okay? Now sign gifts are miraculous gifts. Gifts that, like, for instance, apostleship, or healing, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, prophecy, these are unique spiritual gifts that were given when the church was being established. When you have the apostles, the gospel going forth, and the New Testament being written down, you've had certain individuals, like apostles, but some others, who had what we could call sign gifts. They were miraculous gifts, and they had this purpose— to authenticate the messenger and the message. These miraculous gifts authenticating to the world these people that are speaking the gospel. This is my message, and they are my messengers. In the case of the apostles, it authenticated. These are unique ones in which I am establishing my church. Pay attention. This is supernatural. But once 
the Bible is concluded, these sign gifts actually just stop functioning. It's as if God ceases their operation. Uh, if you've studied church history, you know that to be the case. Once the apostles had written down or their close associates in the New Testament, once they passed off the scene, these sign gifts end. They cease. They don't seem to have any function. In fact, even in the New Testament, you find that to be the case. So like the Apostle Paul, for instance, had the gift of healing. And on several occasions, he actually healed someone. And it brings about an awareness, this is God's messenger, and this is God's message. But at the end of his life, when he desperately needed fellowship, that's what the letter of 2 Timothy strongly emphasizes, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4.20, Trophimus, I left sick at my leaves. If he was still able to exercise this gift, he most certainly would have brought healing in my leaves. But as in keeping, he had established the word, and that was a gift that was no longer being used. There's two other categories of gifts. So there's the sign gifts that have a unique role in church history. There is also speaking gifts. These are gifts in, that are given by God. Anything to do with either like one-on-one, small groups, large groups, singing, music leadership, anything that has to do with speaking, God gives gifts. And I believe a lot of people are gifted to speak in some capacity. It doesn't mean that if you have the gift of speaking that you're like Billy Graham or Kay Arthur, but it means that you're gifted, you have a gift that needs to be developed to help people understand that is used in teaching or in leadership. And there are a wide variety of speaking gifts that are given. There are also, the third category are serving gifts. These are just a wide variety of practical abilities that God gives individuals in a church, at the moment you believe, an opportunity to serve. Oftentimes it's behind the scenes, not very visible, but God has given these gifts. And why does he give these gifts? God glorifies himself when his people work together as a team. They utilize the gifts that they've been given, the opportunities at hand for the building up of the body of Christ and the glory of God. So that's what you see here. You see that in verse 11? Why are these gifts given? All, God supplies all of this so that in all things God may be glorified. He's exalted through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. You and I, utilizing the gifts that God has given us for the building of his body, God's glorified. So let's talk a little bit about some specifics. Like, for instance, turn to Romans 12, and that'll be the final passage we're going to look at today. But look at Romans chapter 12. Beginning, like, in verse 4 and 5, you're going to see that there's unity, diversity, and an interdependence. So let's take a look at it. Romans chapter 12, verse 4. He says... For just as we have many members in one body, or that word members, you can think of it like parts, like parts of your body, just there are many parts in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so that so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So you see there's a unity of the body, there is a diversity, we're all very different, and there's an interdependency. Just like a body has all these different parts, so does a local church. Different parts, different gifting, but we're all working together. And these are gifts. These are God-given abilities. And so he starts talking about that. What does this look like? Verse Beginning in verse 6. And he's going to list some of these gifts. Now, 
In the New Testament, there are about 29 spiritual gifts that are identified. In the verses 6 through 8 that we're going to look at here, you're going to see seven. And the lists that you find in the New Testament are not meant to be exhaustive, but rather they kind of give you an example of the types of gifts that God has given. Okay? So we're going to take a look at this. So what are these God-given abilities? So he says, verse 6, since we have gifts, okay, charisma that has the idea that these are grace-given gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. So the gifts are meant to be used, not one time. It's kind of like exercise. If you want to see the benefits of exercise, you've got to go at least about three times a week. You've got to exercise. That's how muscles get built up. That's how your body gets strengthened, because you're exercising. The same is true with gifts. God intends for you to use the gifts he's given to be exercised for the building up of the body. And so that's what you see here in verse 6. He starts listing the kind of gifts that we are to exercise. The first one he gives is prophecy. Okay, you see that? If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. Verse 6. Let me tell you about prophecy. Prophecy has the idea of literally speaking forth. In the Bible, prophecy has two major elements. There is the prophecy of foretelling, and that's usually what we think of about prophecy. Someone foretelling the future. And of course, you see that in the Bible. God, on a variety of different occasions, either dealing with nations or individuals or the Messiah, he foretells. He tells in advance what is going to happen. And indeed, if it's a true prophet, it happens just the way it, it was revealed by God and recorded and spoken by his prophet. In fact, if a prophet said something, he said he was a prophet that was not true, that was pretty harsh, and they were actually killed, those individuals, okay? That's what you find in the Old Testament. But with once the scriptures were given, both the Old Testament had been completed, completed as well as the New Testament, prophecy in the sense of foretelling ends. In fact, if you read the final verses of the Bible, we're not to either add nor subtract from this book, because God has given us his revelation, and it's complete. It is a closed canon. But the other aspect of prophecy is the one that is most prevalent, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and how it's practiced today, and that is foretelling. Foretelling, advancing, uh, giving knowledge of what's going to happen in the future, but foretelling is actually declaring what God has already said. And that's what he's calling about here. So it's in, in, in prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. And so literally, it, when he talks about the proportion of his faith, it means to be in agreement with the truth. The foretelling has to be directly aligned with his word. This whole idea, and I know it's popular, that God told me to tell you this, or God saying this, I know that that comes off as super authoritarian, and it throws a lot of people off. I personally would not do that. I, I think you've got very good grounds in the New Testament. You're putting yourself on dangerous ground when you say that you're speaking for God. You've got some new revelation for, for individuals. You can manipulate people, and there are churches that kind of emphasize this. That is not how the New Testament's run. The Bible actually emphasizes what God has said. And that's the emphasis of prophecy here. You are teaching in agreement with the faith. Let's keep looking here at some other gifts that he says. Verse 7. If service 
in his service. So you exercise the gift of service, and you do so as you are serving. And this is similar to like the, the gift of helps. It has like any, any need that is there, you see it, and you do what you can to meet it. Now, you can't meet all the needs, but people that are especially gifted in service, like you don't even have to tell them. They can just kind of smell it out, and they're, there they are. And they do it with joy. They're not waiting for like to be asked. Um, certainly, if a need is made aware, they're like, hey, you know, if I could do that, I'm going to try to do that. They're certainly not looking for applause. They're looking to bring glory to God, and they like to serve. And I tell you, a church thrives when you have people that are gifted to serve. And I think actually many of us are. To some degree, there are things that we can do. I mean, we can fold a chair, break down a table. We can sit with children. We can encourage people. We, we can serve in a variety of ways. We can pull weeds, and that's how a church runs. And God gives gifts. It may not be overly glamorous, but it's absolutely critical. And after all, why do you serve? You do so for the glory of God and the building up of his church. Or notice what after he says right after serving, verse 7, or he who teaches in his teaching. Teaching has the idea that you can interpret, clarify, systematize, explain God's truth. You can take difficult concepts and you can make them clear and understandable. You help people understand how this truth applies to life. What does this look like? And it can be done in a one-on-one -on -one basis, like discipleship, small group, a large group. Um, many people are gifted in teaching, but they would never want to be in a large group setting like this. Well, they function extremely well in a small group or on a one-on-one. -on -one. And so that's what they do. They, they study. They have the ability to take accurate facts. They interpret them correctly. They discover principles. They show practical relevance. And that's the gift of teaching. And God wants the gift of teaching to be exercised because he wants his people to grow. And they can't grow apart from God's word, right? Then notice verse 8. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. Exhortation comes in two ways. Negative and positive. The gift of exhortation negatively warns, this is what God says. This is what God says about sin. This is what God says about morality. And they warn, this, if your life is not aligned, they actually love you enough to tell you the truth. On the other hand, there's also the positive side, where they're actively encouraging, showing how growth is taking place, encouraging you to take the next step, bringing and breathing life into your faith. And, and that is the gift of exhortation. And really, all of us are to do these things, like to encourage one another, it's a command to all, not just to have the gift of exhortation, but we all must realize that some people have especially gifted abilities to exhort one another. And that's what he's talking about here. If you've got the gift of exhortation, the gift of encouragement, you want to use it mightily because it is needed in such great ways. Notice also then in verse 8, he who gives is to give with liberality. Now, just like these other gifts, these are things that we do as Christians, some are uniquely gifted, so it is true in giving. All of us are to give. Every believer should be involved. Okay? Giving is an act of worship. Just by the way, uh, I only know of one family giving patterns in our church, and that is the call family, my family. In fact, I tell our bookkeeper who records these things, 
Once you record them, I want you to forget. But I will tell you someone who does not forget. It's God. He wants all of us to be giving, but some people are actually uniquely able and desirous to give extensively. And they find great joy. We have people like that in our church. And it's interesting, it's not just people who happen to be quite wealthy. Oftentimes, it's people that just have like normal incomes like you and I. But they want to give, and they just see themselves as conduits of blessing. And sometimes you have folks that are super wealthy, and every once in a while you, you find out, like it's reported in the news, that they give nothing, okay? That happened in this election. You're like, you're kidding me. Now, these are people that have gifts. We're all to give. But they see needs, and they meet them, and they, they, it's just part of their, their worship and the building of the body is to give, and they give generously with a single mind of seeing God glorified. And then notice what else he said as he's just talking about some of these different spiritual gifts. Right after giving, he talks about mercy, okay? Uh, excuse, he talks about leadership, excuse me. He who leads is to do so with diligence. So you have people giving. Some people are gifted to just give super liberally. Then he talks about leadership, and you're to do so with diligence. This word uh, for a leader is the, like, the one who steers a ship. And God gives people the ability to lead, but these are like all gifts. They've got to be developed. And so people that have the gift of leadership, I will tell you what, who a leader is and how they function. A leader is... The person who knows what to do, why it's important, and how to bring the appropriate resources to bear. They know what to do, okay, like what are the steps that need to take place. They can articulate and do so why this is important. They cast vision. They show why this is important to the overall strategy of what God is calling them to do. And they can bring the appropriate resources to bear. They give the opportunities, they encourage people, they mobilize, they multiply themselves, and that's what leadership is. And so that's what God does. He gives leaders at all differing levels and, and differing abilities, but the ability to lead, and he intends for them to use these gifts. I will tell you that if you have the gift of leadership and it's to be effective, that precludes that you can't be a procrastinator. And I will also tell you this, that leadership without diligence, diligence in its exercise and its development, leads to dysfunction. Some of you actually work in places where you have a person that's got the title of leader, whatever you're going to call it, supervisor, manager, president, but they actually don't lead well, and it makes life miserable, and there are tons of missed opportunities. That's because leadership without diligence, diligence to exercise and development, leads to dysfunction. But God gives, in his church, leaders. Leaders that are to go for it and keep developing and keep encouraging, casting and reinforcing the vision and the mission. And then he talks about the gift of showing mercy. So right after leadership, you see that in verse 8? He who shows mercy is to do so with cheerfulness. Mercy has the idea that you show a sensitivity to people that are suffering or going through difficulty. All of us are to do this, but there's some people that are so good at it. They have a gift, and they do so with cheerfulness. It's like, oh, someone's sick. Oh, I don't want to do anything. And so you look for like 12 ways to avoid it. Now, we're too engaged, but there's some people that are so good at it. 
They can encourage the faint-hearted. They bring an eternal perspective. They pray with the saints. They weep with those who weep, and they do so, so well. And that's what he's saying. If you've been gifted with mercy, every church needs it to be exercised with cheerfulness. I read of uh, one lady. She, uh, her, she and her husband decided that they would bring their mom, who was aging and having issues, into their home where she could care for her. And she was doing everything she could, but man, she was resenting it. This really flipped her life around, and she was having to do things she didn't really want to do, and she wasn't able to do the things that she really liked to do. And her mother, at one point in this, said, why don't you ever smile anymore? You, you never smile. Why don't you smile? And then it hit her. She was showing mercy, yes she was, but she wasn't doing it with cheerfulness. See, that's what God is calling us to do. He wants us to take the gifts that he has given and to use them for the building up of the body and the glory of Christ. And what you do is you see your whole life as a ministry. And God has given you gifts and you utilize them wherever he has placed you. Ministry begins when you stop thinking about how I'm doing to about how we are doing. When you're actually concerned about others and how we're doing, you are engaged. It's a process, and it's a transition. Self-centeredness is like deep into our DNA, but God is trying to bring a Christ-centered perspective, the head, the body, and our involvement in it. That, that means that uh, not everybody can be the quarterback, but we all have a role to play. We fulfill our roles. We are actively involved. So how do you identify your spiritual gifts? Well, let me just tell you, it'd be super cool if you're, like, after you became a Christian, you got a piece of mail or email or text, and God revealed it, like, oh, I got these gifts. But it doesn't work that way. So how does it happen? Well, I'm going to give you three questions. It all begins, first of all, you start serving. Just start serving somewhere, and you ask them these three questions, okay? You're praying, and you're asking these three questions. First of all, what do I like to do? What is it that I actually like to do? Whether it's working with young kids or helping others or giving devotionals or working with my hands, picking weeds, organizing, showing compassion, visiting people, sharing my faith, whatever it might be, what do I like to do? Somewhere along the line, Christians have got the idea that if you like what you're doing, you must be doing something wrong. Because after all, serving God has got to be hard and tiresome and weary. Actually, it's a joy and a delight to serve the Lord. And you want to find your sweet spot. So what do you like doing? Second question you ask is, what do you do well? What do I do well? So for instance, let's say you like children. But you show up and you go into our new children's wing, and the kids see you coming and they pick up their blocks and they start throwing them at you and stuff, and you really can't connect and you don't engage very well. Um, hmm, maybe, maybe that's not where you're supposed to be. What do I do well? It's kind of like being in a band. Play the instrument that you're pretty good at. Not the one that you're terrible at this. You should never be a flute player, right? Here's the drum. Okay, so you do that. You play the instrument that you can grow in and do well with. And then it's kind of like, you know, if you're a third baseman, don't, you, don't try to be a pitcher. Like, oh, man, I want to be a pitcher because that's where all the glory is at. No, why don't you just be the best third baseman you can be? What do I do well? And then the third question is, what is God blessing? What is God blessing? What do others say? As you're serving, you're trying some different things out, 
just ask some people that you're serving with, hey, hey, what do you see? You know, I'm trying to gain clarity as to how God is best using me. Do you think this is my gifting? And they'll, if you find some people that are honest and really care about you, they'll tell you, like, you know, I really see you growing and being effective here. Like, you know, I'm not so sure if that's probably where you're supposed to be. You might want to try some of these things. But you just find out, where does God bless as I'm serving? Now, here's something. Here's very interesting. Nowhere in the New Testament does it call you to completely identify your gifts. Uh, it's not like a prerequisite that you actually have to be able to just completely say, I have these particular gifts at these levels, because you know what? You may not ever fully know how you're completely gifted. You might have, as you continue to serve, and you try different things, you can gain clarity, but you may never have it down completely. But it, what you want to do is you want to be discovering, and as you're discovering, you're developing your gifts, and as you're developing them, you're deploying them. But one thing that you don't want to do is like, like you hear opportunities to serve, and you go, oh, you know, I'd really like to help there. I know you got needs with the kids or whatever, but that's not my gift, so I'm not doing it. Actually, more important than you identifying your gift is you serving God with a heart that wants to see him glorified, and serving God with a heart that wants to see his church being built up. Your gift isn't the most important thing. You know what it is? Serving is. And it's kind of like your muscles. If you want to see your muscles develop, you're going to have to lift weights more than once a year. Just FYI. And if you want to see your gifts develop, you will have to apply yourself. And there'll be diligence. Nothing happens like this. It's not magic. These are gifts given by God that need to be developed. So I just want to ask, what are you doing with the gifts and the talents that God has given you. What are you doing? Could you write something down on your piece of paper, on your notebook? How are you using the gifts that God has given you? It's very interesting. Eric Swanson, in a journal article in Leadership Journal, uh, did a, he writes of a survey that he did in his church. And he wanted to see if there was a relationship between people ministering to others and spiritual growth. And that's what he found. Over half, 58% of those who were not actively ministering to others felt either not satisfied or somewhat satisfied in their level of spiritual growth. But on the converse, when asked, to what extent has your ministry or service to others affected your spiritual growth? Listen to this. 92% answered positively. None responded that ministry had a negative effect on their spiritual growth. So it's just something about you and I serving God that leads to our spiritual development. There's a joy. That's how we're designed, by God. And so the church grows and develops and matures when we see ourselves as a team and we're using our gifts for the building up of his body. I read of this pediatrician named David Sutera, and he shares a story, a true story, about a girl in their church that showed them the honor of serving God. And I just want to read this to you. David Sukero, this doctor, writes this. One Sunday, my wife had prepared a lesson on being useful. She taught the children that everyone can be useful and that usefulness is serving God and that doing so is worthy of honor. The kids quietly soaked up my, life's, my wife's words. And as the lesson ended, there was a short moment of silence. A little girl named Sarah then spoke up. Spoke up. Teacher, what can I do? I don't know how to do many useful things. 
Well, not anticipating that kind of response, my wife quickly looked around and spotted an empty flower vase on the windowsill. She said, well, Sarah, you can bring in a flower and put it in that vase. That would be a useful thing. Sarah frowned. Mm, that's not, not important. Oh, it is, replied my wife, if you're helping someone. Well, sure enough, next Sunday, Sarah brought in a dandelion and placed it in the vase. In fact, she continued to do so each week. Without reminders or help, she made sure the vase was filled with a bright yellow flower, Sunday after Sunday. When my wife told our pastor about Sarah's faithfulness, he placed the vase upstairs in the main sanctuary next to the pulpit. And that Sunday, he gave a sermon on the honor of serving others, using Sarah's vase as an example. The congregation was touched by the message, and the week started out on a good note. But during that same week, Dr. Sapira writes this. I got a call from Sarah's mother. She worried that Sarah seemed to have less energy than usual and that she didn't have an appetite. Offering her some reassurances, I made room in my schedule to see Sarah the following day. After Sarah had a battery of tests and days of examinations, I sat numbly in my office, paperwork on my lap. The results were tragic. She had leukemia. On the way home, I stopped to see Sarah's parents so that I could personally give them this sad news. Sarah's genetics and the leukemia that was attacking her small body were a horrible mix. Sitting at their kitchen table, I did my best to explain to Sarah's parents that nothing could be done to save her life. I don't think I have ever had a more difficult conversation than the one that night. Well, time pressed on. And Sarah became confined to her bed and to the visits that many people gave her. She asked me to come to see her. This call didn't get. She'd lost her smile, she'd lost her weight, and received this telephone call from Sarah's mother that asked me to come and see her. I dropped everything and I ran to the, ran to the house. And there she was, a small bundle that barely moved. After a short examination, I knew that Sarah would soon be leaving this world. I urged her parents to spend as much time as possible with her. Well, that was Friday afternoon. On Sunday morning, church started as usual. The singing, the sermon, it all seemed meaningless when I thought of Sarah. I felt enveloped in sadness. At the end of the sermon, the pastor just suddenly stopped speaking. His eyes were wide, and he stared at the back of the church with utter amazement, and everyone turned around to see what he was looking at, and it was Sarah. Her parents had brought her in for one last visit. She was bundled in a blanket and a dandelion in her little hand. She didn't sit on the back row. Instead, she slowly walked to the front of the church where her vase still perched by the pulpit. And she put her flower in the vase and a piece of paper beside it. And then she returned to her parents. Seeing little Sarah place her flower in that vase for the last time moved everyone. At the end of the service, I saw people gathering around Sarah and her parents, trying to offer as much love and support as possible, and I could barely watch. Four days later, Sarah died. I wasn't expecting it, but our pastor asked to see me after the funeral. We stood at the cemetery near the cars as people walked past us. In a low voice, he said, Dave, I've got something you ought to see. And he pulled out of his pocket the piece of paper that Sarah had left by the vase. 
holding it out to me, he said, you better keep this. It may help you in your line of work. I opened the folded paper to read in pink writing what Sarah had written. Dear God, this face has been the biggest honor of my life, Sarah. And Dr. David Sakira writes this. Sarah's note and her face have helped me to understand. I now realize in a new way that life is an opportunity to serve God by serving people. And as Sarah put it, that is the biggest honor of all. Friends, the church matures. God is glorified. When we serve, we're willing to use, poured out as a vessel fit for his honorable use, and use our gifts for God's glory.